0: This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith.
1: Take a break from the pandemic. Earth is calling. Laughing gas unexpectedly rose out of the warming Arctic. The third major warming gas, nitrous oxide, is emerging from permafrost. Another unexpected feedback. From Finland, we hear from lead author Dr. Maya Maruschak. Then another shock. New science connects disappearing sea ice to increasing wildfires in the western United States. And there were a lot of those this year. This is big news from Dr. Yufei Zhou in our second interview. Welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Yet another dangerous global warming feedback has been uncovered in the Arctic. It's nitrous oxide, the greenhouse gas that doesn't get enough respect. Yes, the major driver of climate change is carbon dioxide, as 63% of human-induced emissions. Methane is next at 17%. Nitrous oxide, more powerful but more rare, lags behind counting only 6% of greenhouse gases from people's activities. Two things. With our future climate on a knife edge, that 6% could tip us into changes difficult to survive. And... Like carbon dioxide and methane, nitrous oxide emissions are rising steeply in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution and accelerating. Six percent of a rapidly growing total burden becomes a larger and larger amount. So what is nitrous oxide? It is a gas where two nitrogen atoms are bound tightly with one oxygen atom. For humans, nitrous oxide is used in dentistry as a pain reliever and for sedation, It is actually an asphyxiant. Strangely, nitrous oxide also triggers the laugh reflex. It is laughing gas. Nitrous oxide was discovered in 1799 by a 20-year-old chemist, Humphrey Davy, and he and his friends soon tried it out for a giggle. In the 1800s, traveling medicine shows and auditoriums blasted whole rooms full of people with nitrous oxide to create uproarious crowds. It still returns periodically as a hip party thing, but remember, nitrous oxide is a dangerous asphyxiant that can be deadly. One other thing, according to Wikipedia, quote, a 2009 study suggested that nitrous oxide emissions was the single most important ozone-depleting emission, and it was expected to remain the largest throughout the 21st century, end quote. So it's not a good thing to have more of it. The basic element nitrogen is cycled through soil, plants, and our bodies, and then back into the atmosphere. The process of nitrogen being captured by microorganisms is called nitrification. When those microorganisms or other ones release it again to make a gas, that is denitrification, where it unites with oxygen, escaping as the potent greenhouse gas nitrous oxide. Here is the new wrinkle. Until recently, science agreed the big plays in the nitrogen cycle are in the tropics. The Arctic has lots of nitrogen frozen in the soils, but it lacks the microorganisms that would free it. Well, thank goodness for that. But new science finds a warming Arctic and thawing permafrost. Serious nitrous oxide emissions are starting up. That means humans can emit even fewer greenhouse gases before we lose our livable planet because we have this northern feedback loop developing. So let's get to that new science. You hear about carbon dioxide and methane flowing into the atmosphere as permafrost thaws. But there is more. Nitrous oxide, the greenhouse gas we hardly ever hear about. It is pound for pound 300 times more powerful for warming than carbon dioxide. Nitrous oxide stays in the atmosphere for around 114 years. Humans induce about 43% of nitrous oxide gas reaching the atmosphere. The rest is natural, so to speak. But nitrous oxide from natural sources is getting a boost as the northern top of the planet thaws. New science published December twenty twenty one in the journal Nature explores vast lands where powerful greenhouse gases emerge in what could be a positive climate feedback. Dr. Maya Marushik is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Jyväskylä in Finland. She authored and co-authored dozens of works on the Arctic. From Finland, Maya, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hello, everyone, and thanks
0: for the invitation. How much
1: warming comes from nitrous oxide in the atmosphere?
0: Um, Nitrous oxide is the third most important greenhouse gas after carbon dioxide and methane, and its contribution to the global warming cost by greenhouse gases is about 6%.
1: 6%? Yes. Okay. Is nitrous oxide increasing in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and methane are?
0: It is increasing. it is increasing more rapidly during the past four decades than it was increasing before. So compared to pre-industrial times, it has increased about 20% or a bit.
1: That's quite a bit. There's a lot of nitrogen reappearing in the Arctic as the permafrost thaws, but previously scientists considered Arctic nitrogen less important than emissions that could come from the tropics. What has changed?
0: That is very true that Traditionally, people haven't been very concerned about permafrost nitrogen, and there is a good basis for thinking that uh, in Arctic this nitrous oxide doesn't matter so much. That is because Arctic is a very cold environment, as we all know, and you have a lot of nitrogen in the soil, as you have a lot of carbon too. But it is there quite well conserved by the cold temperatures and also by permafrost, so really locked from the microbial decomposition. And it has been so before that the nitrogen availability is so low because of the slow nitrogen mineralization from soil organic matter. So the availability for microbes and plants of nitrogen has been really low earlier. But now Arctic is changing very rapidly, as we know. So it is very quickly warming, twice as quick as the globe on average, or Locally, it can be even three times or four times quicker than the globe is warming. And that is causing big changes in this nitrogen availability from soil organic matter. So this nitrogen mineralization, which uh, produces the mineral nitrogen that can be used by plants and microbes. That is now increasing. And also, uh, this Permafrost nitrogen that has been locked from decomposition that now becomes available when the permafrost thaws. And now there can be more nitrogen available that can be immediately used by plants and microbes. And this can cause now the leak to the atmosphere as nitrogenous gases, including nitrous oxide.
1: It can be difficult to grasp what this is about. So you led the new paper published in Nature December seventh, 2021. The title is Thawing Yadoma permafrost is a Neglected Nitrous Oxide Source. What is Yadoma?
0: Okay, Yadoma is one of the most important permafrost types that we know. So there's permafrost peat and then Yadoma, which contain very huge carbon pools. And... Yodoma that means these kind of fine-grained, organic-rich sediments that were accumulated over large areas in Siberia and uh, Far East, Russia, and Alaska and Yukon during the late Pleistocene, so the last ice age. So uh, most of the northern hemisphere was covered by ice sheets, but between those ice sheets there were, there were these mammoth grasslands. So they were dry and cold environments where winter sediments were accumulated. And after the accumulation, they were quickly frozen. And that's how Yeroma has been generated. And uh it occurs now as these very thick deposits. So it can be Uh, Several tens of meters, so even 50, 60 meters deep deposits of this late ice age organic material. And when that pours, then this carbon and nitrogen from Yodoma becomes available for microbes.
1: Is the Yodoma the actual wedges of ice that is stuck in Arctic land, or is it the landscape that contains those icy wedges?
0: So, Yedoma means these deposits. So, this kind of, uh, soil material, fine-grained soil material that contains then carbon and nitrogen. And you, you mentioned the ice wedges. So, there are something very characteristic for Yedoma. When Yedoma was accumulated, it was this kind of polygonal mammoth tundra where it was accumulated, and typical for this polygonal tundra are that it forms these ice wedges, so big clumps of pure ice that are formed in cracks in the soil. So Yeroma consists of these Yeroma sediments, sediment material, and then these ice wedges of pure ice. And why these ice wedges are important, so they don't contain so much carbon or nitrogen, But they make Yeroma very vulnerable for thaw. So when Yeroma thaws, these ice wedges, they are melted away. So it's almost pure water and they can, they can comprise even 85% of the total soil volume in these Yeroma sediments. So when those ice wedges are melted away and the Yeroma also thaws, a big volume disappears with those ice wedges, and that causes very catastrophic thawing and ground collapse, uh, which can then reveal very deep soil profiles completely in a short time. And in our uh, recent study, we really studied this kind of Yeroma exposure, so collapse sites where tens of meters of Yeroma are exposed in riverbanks,
1: Is there a lot of this nitrogen-rich Yedoma in the world, and where is it?
0: Yes, there is a lot of Yedoma in the world. So the Yedoma region covers more than 1 million square kilometers across the northern hemisphere, and it occurs over large areas in Siberia and Russian Far East and Alaska and Yukon.
1: And there's another common misunderstanding, and it's beautifully addressed in your new paper. To find past atmospheric conditions in the deep past, we know that scientists measure gases trapped in bubbles in the glaciers. But the nitrous oxide you warn about is not just ready, sitting there in bubbles, ready to rise up from thawed ground. Please describe the process required after the thaw when nitrogen can go airborne as nitrous oxide.
0: This is a very good question, and it brings to us to the main players of these permafrost feedbacks to climate change. So, I mean, you no, know, the microbes. Uh, in our paper, we could very nicely link the microbial community in these thawed Yeroma sediments with these nitrous oxide fluxes. So, we noticed that right after the Yeroma sediments, they don't produce a lot of nitrous oxide. But it takes about 10 years uh, when the sediments are dried and stabilized and revegetated. And together with these changes, there are big changes in the microbial community. And we saw increased abundance of those functional genes which contribute to nitrous oxide production in the soils. There are two main processes producing nitrous oxide in soils nitrification and denitrification. And we found increased relative abundance of these nitrifier genes that produce nitrate. And then we also find, found inc- increased abundance of denitrifier genes, which then use the nitrate to produce nitrous oxide. Yeah, th- these are very interesting dynamics, what happens after permafrost thaw? because often it's the case that permafrost is lacking some of the Important functional microbial groups. But then in a real environment, the microbes can become abundant that we're lacking in the first
1: place. It's kind of a small revelation, really, to me in your paper, because if you need the right set of microorganisms in the soil, and they're not there when the ground first thaws, that kind of means that, like the birds and the fish and the plants, microbes are pushing towards the poles as the ground warms and thaws.
0: Well... This is kind of what is happening. Uh, It's not this kind of northward migration like can happen for the tree line or for the birds or some plant species, but it is so that what we find in intact permafrost before it has been thawed, that doesn't mean that nothing else can access there. So microbes, they can be moving within the ground with water flows, and they can be also dispersed by air so, more or less, it is so that any microbial groups, they can start to thrive, thrive in this stern first with time. So, depending on the environment, is it wet or dry, what kind of conditions are there? So, the right microbes will find there. And um, with Yeroma, which is nitrogen-rich sediment, it makes sense that nitrogen-transforming microbes will find their way there. And in right conditions, they will start to produce nitrous oxide.
1: At the 2012 meeting for the American Academy for the Advancement of Science in Vancouver, I was there. I listened to a conversation among permafrost experts. And even then, just 10 years ago, permafrost emissions seemed like a kind of obscure subject For experts, it would take thousands of years before anything much happened. But now we're seeing changes in a lifetime, and I find widely different predictions about the speed of permafrost thaw and when emissions will enter a feedback loop, etc. What are your predictions about timing?
0: It is true that the scientific community has known for some time that this permafrost carbon feedback will be there, but it is not there yet in the IPCC predictions, like permafrost is mentioned in the latest IPCC report, but the permafrost feedback is not yet in the models which are used to create those emission scenarios. So it's always that policymaking is lacking behind what scientific community knows. And besides that, we have still great gaps in the knowledge when we think about these permafrost climate feedbacks. And uh, also, it hasn't been fully incorporated to this coupled carbon climate models. And here we are talking about yet another feedback related to permafrost. So with nitrous oxide emissions, it's a direct feedback to climate change, but also this permafrost nitrogen that has great implications for the carbon cycle. I like how quickly this carbon will be decomposing in permafrost soils That is affected by nitrogen, because it's a main nutrient. And also the potential for arctic vegetation to take up atmospheric CO2, so this cooling effect to climate. We know that it will happen, but it will be also controlled by the nutrient availability, also by nitrogen. So there is a lot to find out.
1: You know, a couple of years ago, NASA announced the process of melting and breakup of the massive Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica was, quote, unstoppable, not a word they use very often. Can we now say the same about permafrost thaw?
0: Yeah, I think we could say that, because it is a process that is ongoing. It has been documented well that permafrost is thawing and these abrupt thawing events and all kinds of disturbances like wildfires and this ground collapse related to thaw, they are becoming more common. And uh, these natural processes, when they have been initiated, we are like accelerating them with our greenhouse gas emissions. But these natural feedback mechanisms, they are something we cannot easily affect. So when they are in progress, they will continue and they will feed back to the climate change, even if we stop all our emissions.
1: You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest from Finland is postdoctoral researcher Maya Marschuk. And we're hearing about a little-known global warming gas that is increasing in the atmosphere as the planet thaws permafrost in the Arctic. Is the amount of nitrous oxide coming from thawing permafrost significant now? And is there a way to really measure and know that?
0: To this, I have to say that no one knows, because this topic has been so little studied. And there is not a good monitoring network for Arctic nitrous oxide emissions. So there are no continuous monitoring stations in the Arctic who are measuring nitrous oxide. So now we just rely on these few observations. I can say maybe dozens of studies who have looked into Arctic nitrous oxide. But there should be a lot of work done with this topic in the near future. Uh, also, since there are so few observations, we cannot really model these emissions. So that's something that we are currently doing. So we are trying to now incorporate the knowledge from the observations to these biocheck models and process models. So we are collaborating with modelers there. But currently, those models cannot predict these emissions. So a lot needs to be done. And also... We don't know so well the distribution of these landforms. For example, these Yeromothor sites, how abundant they are in the Arctic, because they they can be quite small in the area, so they cannot be detected by many of the large-scale satellites. So this is something new, but definitely something that requires more research.
1: You also say nitrous oxide is, quote, a dominant contributor to ozone destruction in the stratosphere. Talk to us briefly about that.
0: Yeah, that's right. So this Montreal Protocol was a very efficient means to control the emissions of the ozone destruction substances, but N2O wasn't included in that protocol. And that's why currently when the CFC emissions have gone down, Currently, nitrous oxide is the most important substance which is causing ozone destruction in the stratosphere.
1: In 2020, you co-authored a paper led by Carolina Voigt last year. Nitrous oxide emissions from permafrost-affected soils is the title. How does that paper fit in with your latest work?
0: Yes, that was the synthesis of all the nitrous oxide studies from permafrost-affected soils. And in this synthesis, we found out which were the most important factors leading to high nitrous oxide emissions from the first affected soils. And these factors include, besides the intermediate soil moisture content that I mentioned already, this high nitrogen availability, and that's related to soil organic matter content. So organic soils like peat soils, they can boost high nitrogen availability and also the quality of the organic matter. So carbon-to-nitrogen ratio, for example, is quite important determinant for nitrous oxide emissions. And besides these factors, also any kind of disturbances, like I mentioned before. So disturbs vegetation or lack of vegetation, that can boost nitrous oxide production because when plants are not taking up any nitrogen from the soil, then more is available for soil microbes, including those producing nitrous oxide. So that was the knowledge that we used to build the hypothesis for this Yeroma work also. And our expectations were that we will find also the highest emissions from third Yeroma without any plants, so these recently thought sites. And that's why we were quite surprised when we found the highest emissions from soils that had been already revegetated by some pioneering plants, so grasses and mosses.
1: So plants are playing a role. That's interesting. Maya, have you been to Siberia yourself to investigate uh, the permafrost thaw and nitrous oxide?
0: Yes, I have been doing a lot of fieldwork in Arctic Russia. We are neighboring countries here, Finland and Russia. So. The closest real waste Pelfast areas to us are in Russia. So I have worked in Komi Republic in the European Russia, focusing on Pelfast peatlands, And then I have went to Sahar Republic in northeastern Siberia to study these Yeroma sites.
1: And the thawing edge of permafrost is, is alien landscape to most of us. Uh, you are much closer to the Arctic Circle. Uh, you have a school of Finland, is just 481 kilometers or 299 miles south of that Arctic Circle dividing line. Tell us what it's like, this land of transition from long frozen ground to new landscapes.
0: Yes, this is something that we see, see also in Finland. So now I can tell about my last summer's fieldwork. In northern Finland, I studied methane and carbon dioxide release from balsamires. And these balsamires are ecosystems which have the last bits of permafrost in Finland. So Finland doesn't have a lot of permafrost, but just sporadic permafrost, which is located in these peatlands, because when peat is dry, it isolates very well against warm temperatures, so it conserves the permafrost. But uh, during the last decades, these balsamires have been degrading very rapidly, and I could really see it in the field. So I could see previous balsam vegetation, like these dwarf birches, which have been growing on the top of these frozen permafrost balsas. They were now underwater submerged. And uh, I also discussed with my colleagues who have been monitoring these balsamires during the past 10-15 years, and he was indicating quite large areas that were still having permafrost 10 years ago, but now they were underwater. So it seems that we are losing the last bits of our permafrost, maybe even during my own lifetime, and they are gone.
1: So what do we need to do to better monitor, to really know how much dangerous greenhouse gases are coming out of thawing permafrost?
0: Yeah, according to my opinion, we need more of these long-term monitoring stations across the Arctic, which also include nitrous oxide measurements. Because when we are talking about something that hasn't been studied before, it is very, very difficult to know if these emissions have been always there or if they are there as a result of recent climate change. So we are lacking this base case scenario and to observe how quickly this process is happening, we should start monitoring those things now and then we could observe the changes. and also with this increasing availability of data, we could incorporate this knowledge to models that we could use to extrapolate these observations over large areas. and then we could start to talk about magnitude of these emissions. And then we could also compare it with carbon dioxide and methane. So currently, we don't know, and we cannot really estimate how large this feedback will be.
1: So Maya, do you think that permafrost thaw could become a major driver of climate change, say as big as disappearing sea
0: ice? Definitely, this permafrost climate feedback, that can be substantial, and that can be a significant addition to the global emission budget. So now we are trying to mitigate the human-related emissions. We are talking about these emission budgets that we still have left for a certain level of warming, let's say two degrees of warming. And if we don't incorporate in those modeling predictions this permafrost carbon feedback, we might miss something So we might actually need to mitigate our emissions even more if we don't account for these natural emissions that will take place, no matter what we do. So this is something that should be urgently done.
1: And what are you working on next?
0: I'm working on my data related to anaerobic decomposition processes that I have been studying three past years in the University of Jyväskylä. That's data that has been collected, and I will now publish next. But then I'm also very excited to continue on this Thermofrost Nitrogen path, so trying to understand it even better, how large is the nitrous oxide feedback from Thermofrost, and which are the controls of it. Also incorporating our observations to the models and these large-scale estimates, that's something that... My group is
1: currently working on. We'll be watching this permafrost from the University of Ijeviskule, Finland. We have been speaking with postdoctoral researcher Maya Maroshek. You can find links to all the science we talked about in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the World. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org.
2: This is Radio Equal Shock with your host, Alex Smith.
1: Now that more of the Arctic Ocean is exposed to the sun every summer, could that affect weather in North America, Europe, Russia, Japan, or China? Does the record retreat of Arctic sea ice change weather in the mid latitudes where billions of people live? Could that help explain strange weather in the Northern Hemisphere in recent years? We all want to know. In 2012, Dr. Jennifer Francis from Rutgers blew the doors off this question. Her paper was published the same year a giant polar storm broke up thin sea ice to create a record low that still stands in 2022. I interviewed Dr. Francis on that paper and again over the years. In 2017, we heard scientist Ivana Sivanovic, explained low sea ice was bouncing into the Pacific weather systems, bringing drought to California. That serious drought has persisted for years. But other serious scientists disagree, starting with Mark Cerise, the director of the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder, Colorado. At the recent COP26 climate gathering in Scotland, senior research scientist Walter Meyer from that center gave a presentation at the Cryosphere Pavilion. Meyer called the connection between low sea ice and mid-latitude weather wishful thinking. Let's hear that, and then we go to yet another strong science paper showing low sea ice is definitely connected in some way to increasing wildfires in the western United States. Dr. Walt Meyer at COP26, November 5, 2021.
2: The other extremes that people talk about a lot is the mid-latitude connection, the connection between the Arctic and the changes in in the sea ice and the Arctic warming and how that may affect the mid-latitudes. And this was a a really big paper, uh, Jennifer Francis and Steve Bavris in geophysical research letters published in 2012. And this, in in our community, I'd say this made a, a bang. This was, you know, Maybe not quite Einstein special relativity level, um, but this was a pretty big paper um, and really got a lot of attention. And it got a lot of attention uh, in, in 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 many ways. First, to kind of just quickly summarize their paper, the idea is you are know, you're, you're warming the Arctic and you're you're losing sea ice. You're warming the Arctic. That's that's changing the balance between the warm Ar- or the cold Arctic and the warmer mid latitudes. And the jet stream kind of is essentially set up by this balance, by the, the colder Arctic and the warmer mid-latitude. And you can break down, that can break down from time to time as cold air spills out and the jet stream gets kind of wavy instead of being more west to east flow. And the idea is, is that as you warm the Arctic, that balance is, is decreasing. So it's more easy for that, that outflow of that colder air, which is relatively less cold, to spill out and cause this wavy jet stream. Um, and that, that does is it, it weakens the jet stream. You get more of a north-south flow instead of a, east, uh, instead of a west-to-east flow. That, can, that leads to more extreme events. So when you have this wavier jet stream, that allows you know, air from the south to more easily infiltrate north on the one side or from the north that filterate south. So you can get cold air outbreaks, you can get heat waves. It also tends to slow storm tracks. So you get more extreme events, you get highs that get stuck, and you get a heat wave and drought. You can get flooding, you get a storm that moves very slowly, as the the jet stream doesn't move it out like it normally would. So that's kind of the idea behind that paper and, and behind the idea of this connection. And like I said, it got a lot of attention uh, at the time, And it still gets a lot of attention. Um, This is just this last winter. It certainly got a lot of press in the United States, especially when anything happens in Texas, it gets a lot of attention in the United States. Um, But when they had the big uh, cold outbreak record, near record low or record low, the certainly lowest in many, many years um, in February, 2021. And it caused a big power failure um, and people lost power and had pipes breaking and flooding. And uh, um, I think our people still recovering from that. So, so it had a big impact. And it really, uh, you know, it was a cold air outbreak, a very strong cold air outbreak. So, you know, even at this point, there was the connection or people talked about this is the the warming Arctic and how that was one thing that could be contributing to that. So, you know, is there actually a connection? So this is where it, it's been an interesting discussion. There's been a lot of talk, but it, it, it stirred up a lot of talk and a lot of controversy um, and particularly from kind of a skeptical community, um, there were a lot of people that really pushed back and, and still are pushing back against this, that they don't feel that, there's, that this connection is really there. Looked at some data, some reanalysis data, and basically correlated these, these changes in the jet stream with the, the loss of sea ice and with the warming. And, of course, we all know correlation does not mean causation. A lot of uh, folks, especially tropical climatologists, uh, atmospheric dynamics folks that really felt that the Arctic is is not a big enough player. Uh, it's it's a smaller area. There's not as much energy that the the tropics are really much more of an influence on the mid latitudes compared to the uh, compared to the Arctic. You know, it, it wasn't just this oh this, this kind of like belief. Uh, there there was papers that have been published that showed that you know no there there isn't a link. They don't find a link depending on what data is looked at. Um and how it's looked at, so it, it's gone back and forth for many years. You know, but nonetheless, this just came out in September. Uh, Judah Cohen's one of the uh, folks that have been uh, pretty uh, big into the research and have, have found some links uh, between the variability and extreme, win- especially in extreme winters. So this was in September and saying yes, there is a link. And uh, you know, I think one of the things that's that's a concern is. It may be wishful thinking to some degree. Not to say that, like Jennifer Francis and Steve Babars and others that have found links, that they're they're making things up or that they're they're not interpreting the data correctly. I mean, they're really uh, great scientists. You know, I know Jennifer and Steve, and they do great work, and their you know, their papers are good. But I think there are things that, depending on how you look at the data, it, you can come up with different answers. And one of the things is we're looking at extreme events, and extreme events are by their nature rare and trying to detect a signal in extreme events and a record that's only about 40 years old is very difficult to do if you've got something that happens only once in a century and it starts to happen and you've changed things so now it happens once every 50 years well do you actually see that in a 40-year record and again there's this temptation i think to in wishful thinking to try to make that connection um and as a scientist I think we have to always be careful about that. You know, one of the questions as someone who works in the Arctic, give presentations, especially for sea ice. People in, in uh Europe, people in the United States, in the lower forty eight United States will say, Well, you know, what does this mean for me? And, you know, for Greenland, Antarctica, ice sheet, sea level rise, you can make the connection. For sea ice, it can be hard to do. You know, you can talk about how Sea ice is a is a bellwether. You know the changes that are happening to sea ice are going to happen to the rest of the globe later. But there's that temptation, a desire to really want to say, no, the sea ice loss is going to affect you directly. And so, this is the, this mid latitude teleconnection is a great thing to to make that connection to say that big snowstorm you had or that big heat wave that was due to the sea ice or partly due to the sea ice or, or the Arctic warming. But you know it's hard to say if that data is really there yet. But I I caveat that also with, you know, you're taking an area roughly the size of Western Europe, um, the Arctic Ocean, and you're changing it from almost completely ice covered year round to being almost seasonally ice free, at least during the summertime. You know, that's changing the albedo from, you know, 0.7, 0.8 to 0.1. That's a huge change over a big area. And I, you know, I just don't think you can make that big of a change without having some effect outside of the Arctic. And I think as that as the changes continue to occur and as we get a longer record, I I think we will start to see um, some signal outside of the noise. What happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. I do think that that is true.
1: That was research scientist Walt Meyer from the National Snow and Ice Data Center giving a presentation at the Cryosphere Pavilion at COP26, November 5, 2021. Dozens of papers show links between missing sea ice and weather further south. I think Walt Meyer does a disservice by calling that link wishful thinking, like a sales pitch to interest big populations in the south. But that is just part of the downplaying of the real climate emergency Typical at these COP meetings and their utter failure to control climate change over the last 25 years. Scientific caution may kill us yet. As Jennifer Francis points out, the observed links between low sea ice and jet stream distortion are just recorded facts. The tough part is to find the links or the drivers to the south. You are about to hear from the lead author of yet another new paper showing those connections from sea ice, this time to Western wildfires like the stunning record fires of 2021.
2: Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org.
1: Record-busting, heartbreaking fires have become the new normal in the Western United States. Incredibly, new science finds a driver far, far away. The paper is called Increasing Large Wildfires Over the Western United States, Linked to Diminishing Sea Ice, In the Arctic. How is that possible? The lead author is Dr. Yufei Zhu. Zhu led dozens of papers, not just on fire science, but on aerosols and air pollution, including in China. Until recently, he was a research scientist at the University of Washington and the Pacific Northwest National Lab. Now, Yufei Zhu brings expertise to a new climate risk company called Kettle. Yufei, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Thank you all for
3: having me here.
1: Well, through smoke and flames and evacuations and closed highways, listeners on the west coast feel like survivors. How serious is the increase in fire in the western United States?
3: Well, I don't want to be a whistle of bad news, but uh, those personal experiences and feelings are supported by statistical numbers in multiple fire datasets. And during the past few decades, both numbers and annual burn areas keep increasing over in the western U.S., and the annual average burn areas of large wildfires grew by about 300 percent between the 1980s and twenty ten. In 2021, almost 9,000 wildfires burned more than 2.5 million acres in California, making it the second largest fire season right after 2020 on record in California's modern history. So these destructive fires have caused tremendous damage to people's lives and properties. And they also release a large amount of greenhouse gases and toxic aerosols into the atmosphere, causing a serious threat to public safety.
1: So what are the observed relationships between retreating sea ice in the Arctic Ocean and increasing fires in the western United States?
3: The Arctic sea ice and regional fire danger conditions are negatively correlated in the observational data sites, with more fire favorable weather conditions in the western U.S., following less sea ice in the Arctic, and uh, vice versa. In the meantime, more fires and uh, larger burn areas are observed over the western U.S., and uh, these fire favorable conditions, like what we experienced in recent years, And this observed relationship motivated our study to investigate the underlying mechanism behind it.
1: Yes, and to tie these distant actions together so far apart, we need the concept of teleconnection. What is that, and how real is it?
3: The term teleconnection refers to a linkage between weather changes occurring in widely separated regions, like what we are discussing here. And it's commonly applied to correlate uh, atmospheric variability on monthly and uh, longer time scales, reflecting large scale changes in atmospheric waves and jet stream patterns that influence weather over a long distance away. The most famous tannic collection pattern might be in the southern oscillation as the atmospheric component of El uh, Nino. Which links surface air pressure change between the eastern and the western tropical Pacific regions, and there are many other action patterns, such as the North Atlantic Oscillation and the Pacific North America patterns, etc. All working together to shape weather conditions we're, we're experiencing.
1: Does teleconnection operate high in the stratosphere or closer to us in the troposphere?
3: There are different atmospheric pathways being proposed. Regarding those connections between the Arctic and the middle Arctic regions, in our case, we observed a tropospheric pathway to link atmospheric change in the troposphere driven by Arctic sea ice change to far weather change over the West U.S.
1: When we try to anticipate the weather, the public has learned to watch ocean heat conditions in the eastern Pacific, called either El Niño or La Niña. How does the Arctic sea ice teleconnection compare in its strength, so to speak, to that?
3: We do compare uh, this Arctic-related tannic connection with uh, ENSO as the leading mode of climate variability that ties to sea surface temperature change over the eastern Pacific Ocean, uh, eastern tropical Pacific Ocean. And we found comparable impacts of these two tannic connections on regional fair weather between years with minimum and maximum ice. However, the strength of Enso impacts vary year by year with no uh, significant long term trend, while the strength of the Arctic related tannic action shows an increasing trend due to continuous melting sea ice in the warming Arctic. And another difference between these two tannic actions is that the current generation uh, climate models show better agreement on the variability and the influence of the of the Enso tannic action than that of the Arctic time time connection, suggesting a more challenging job to capture and related time connection processes in those climate models.
1: If there's low sea ice during an El Nino year, which is expected to be hotter, does that indicate a possible super fire season? Why were the fires so bad in 2021, which was a La Nina year?
3: These climate factors could act in a constructive way with boosted effects, but they may also cancel out each, with each other to result in a neutral effect. The actual impact of either Arctic change or the El Nino-Nanina cycle depends on the location we're interested in. So, for example, it is true that El Nino winters are generally warmer than in most parts of Canada and the northern part of the US. But for people living in the southern part of the US, like California, they would feel a cooler and wetter winter during our Nino years. And during the Nina phase, these deviations from normal conditions are generally reversed. So therefore, a Nanina year could be bad for fire conditions with more hot and dry weather over in the southern U.S. due to a forward-shifted Pacific jet stream. This is also confirmed by our analysis in the supplementary information of our paper.
1: How do you know increasing amounts of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are not directly responsible for heating and drying the West, rather than a relationship with Arctic sea ice levels?
3: The direct effects of greenhouse gases and other anthropogenic forcing were evaluated by comparing the AMAP and amap PF forcing experiments from the CMAP-6 project. These two experiments share the same observation-based surface boundary conditions in sea surface temperature and the sea ice, but with different anthropogenic forcing levels of greenhouse gases and aerosols in the atmosphere and land is change. So please note that the difference of these two experiments only isolates the direct climate effects of anthropogenic forcing agents left in the atmosphere and the land, while the indirect effects of these forcing agents are still preserved in the ocean datasets used to drive both experiments since the ocean absorbs more than 90% of the heat, uh, the heat gained by our planet, it's not surprising that the changes in surface boundary conditions, including both SST and the CS change, dominate atmospheric anomalies we saw in, in our simulations.
1: You do note in the paper, increasing but still controversial evidence of emerging connections between high-latitude environmental change and mid-latitude weather extremes in both warm and cold seasons of the past few decades. Why is this link controversial?
3: That's because we still have inconsistency in climate modeling results when it comes to the climate impacts of high-latitude environment change. The observational data sites are also relatively short, to draw a solid conclusion about actual polar impacts of artificial, change, And I think that's why a PE-MAP project, which is short for Polar Amplification Model Intercomparison Project, has been initiated in the latest CMAP6 project to try to narrow down modeling uncertainties and improve our understanding of this phenomena through a coordinated set of numerical models experiments.
1: And the well-known British researcher James Screen suggests the pattern you describe may change if sea ice is lost across the whole Arctic. A so-called blue ocean event could happen before the year 2050. Let me quote from Carbon Brief here. In the longer term, research by Screen suggests that as global temperatures rise, the risk of severe winters in North America is likely to fall, not rise, if greenhouse gases Emissions continue to be high. So as the Arctic continues to warm and sea ice continues to melt, we can't expect its influence on mid-latitude weather to stay the same. Your comment, Dr. Zhu.
3: Dr. Screen is a well-respected researcher in this field who has done lots of work to resolve the uncertainty and the minerality of Arctic change and their global impacts. Many previous modeling studies have also suggested nonlinear responses in middle latitude weather to Arctic sea ice forcing with different intensity. It might be true that the time collection relationship we're talking here will be totally different given an ice-free Arctic. But that's a different question from what we discussed in our paper, as we mainly focused on the past four decades as a transient temperature when the Arctic is still ex- experiencing drastic change. Dr. Screen has also clarified the distinctions between these scientific questions in his uh, Can It, Has It, and Will It paper, published in um, 2015. Our paper was inspired by this insightful discussion by focusing on the first two questions uh, from a retrospective view.
1: I'm reminded of Jennifer Francis of Rutgers. I asked her why some question her theory of changes in the jet stream due to Arctic changes, and she replied she was not advancing a theory. Her work announced relationships between observed data. How much does your new work depend on observations and how much on modeling?
3: I would say half and half, because all model-based results uh, were compared against observational and reanalysis data before and after removing the
1: long-term trends. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. Yufei Zhu. We are looking at how retreating sea ice in the Arctic leads to more wildfires in the West. Yufei, to what extent does your understanding of the relationship between Arctic warming and mid-latitude changes build on the work of Radio EcoShock guest Dr. Judah Cohen? Uh, Dr. Cohen is also a
3: well-known scientist in this field and I learned a lot from his work. I noticed he recently published a paper in Science to highlight the importance of stratospheric polyvortex stretching in linking Arctic variability with extreme winter weather in, in the U.S. So congratulations to him. Uh, although in this study we proposed a tropospheric pathway that is different from the stratospheric pathway he advocated, this may result from different seasons we studied The stress responses are usually more permanent in winter when the port of Earth is strong.
1: Well, the Arctic Ocean is a big place. Uh, it is the world's smallest ocean, but it is still one and a half times the size of the United States. Is this teleconnection coming out of the Arctic as a whole or just part of it?
3: In our study, we found that in the Pacific sector of the Arctic near the Pacific Ocean, as the most significant region, affecting fire weather conditions in downstream regions like the West U.S.
1: And has the change in sea ice affected the length of the fire season as well? Does it extend it to spring or fall?
3: It could be. Exacerbated uh, fire weather in fall and early winter could extend the length of the fire season, and that could be more dangerous since surface fuels have been fully desiccated after the preceding fire season during summer. And the windy conditions like Santana and the Diablo winds during fall and winter also contribute to this dangerous fire weather condition. So maybe that's why we saw more destructive fires during later seasons in recent years.
1: Well, yes, the recent urban firestorm near Boulder that burned over 1,000 homes, could that be related to conditions in the Arctic Sea too?
3: I think it's still too early to... To, to draw a solid conc- conclusion here since it just occurred last week. And I need to do to, I need to do more data analysis before I can answer this question. And uh, I'm sorry for the loss of people who suffered this disaster.
1: Do your results on declining sea ice cover and western fires apply to Canada as well?
3: Not really, because our modeling results suggest a warmer but wetter Canada, especially in the northwest coastal region which leads to uh, suppressed fire activities for most Canadian areas. And similar changes are also evident in reanalysis-based composite results due to power shifted jet streams and uh, storm tracks.
1: How detailed is this relationship? Does it work with data by decades or right down to the year? For example, the Arctic report card from NOAA says sea ice records for 2021 are not record lows, but still among unusually low years. 2021 did see the lowest level of multi-year Arctic sea ice on record. If we know the amount of sea ice, say in June, can that actually help predict how bad the fire season will be in the West that summer and fall?
3: Yes. This seasonal linkage between the summer Arctic and the full Western U.S. works on uh, both interdecadal and interannual variations, as shown in our observation-based analysis. And one of our reviewers has also pointed out that this technique tiny connection relationship is helpful for improving fire predictability on seasonal timescale. But more work needs to be done to integrate this relationship with other influencing factors like atmospheric internal variability and SO
1: impacts. You mentioned that 2015 paper by Barnes & Screen. Uh, it was titled The Impact of Arctic Warming on Mid-Latitude Jet Stream." Can it? Has it? Will it? You find affirmative answers for can it and has it, but what about will it? Can it be worse? Yufei, do you expect the trend of more fire weather to continue into the future?
3: Yes. We actually answered the will question in another paper published in 2019. And we predicted a near near doubled annual burn area change in North America from the the 2000s to the 2050s using the same fire model in this study. But that's a synthetic effect driven by all forcing factors, not just by the uptake chain discussed in this
1: paper. But a doubling of, of fire by 2050. Yes. Well, at, le- at least of fire conditions. So in 2021, the government's Oak Ridge National Lab published your proposal to create a new hybrid of machine learning and observations, a kind of open source mechanism for predicting wildfire risk. Is that going to happen?
3: I hope it will happen sooner than later, but uh, it requires lots of uh, effort with more resources that are not available at this moment because I recently changed my job.
1: Yes, you transferred to a San Francisco startup which offers new climate science to help reinsurance companies assess the real fire risk in the western U.S. Did I get that right? Is that what Kettle does?
3: Yes. Our goal at Kettle here is to balance risk in our changing climate. And we aim at improving fire prediction skills for a better understanding of fire risk in fire-pronged regions like California. And we are developing new data-driven fire models based on process-based fire models and tons of observational data and uh, advanced machine learning techniques to achieve this.
1: Just on a personal level here, a lot of Americans and Canadians used to love summers. Now they fear it, partly because of the fires, the threat of evacuations all the time and air too smoky to breathe, what can we do to help keep that from getting worse? I think
3: uh, it requires collaborative efforts of all people living on this planet to address this issue associated with global climate change. And the the things we can do in our daily life could be more energy conservation and emission reduction. And we can also try a carbon-neutral lifestyle by following the three R's principle to reduce our carbon footprint. And this three R's principle generally refers to reduce, reuse, and recycle.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners? Yeah, thank you all for listening.
3: And it's, it is my greatest, my greatest pleasure to share with you about our work and the thoughts in this pro- program. And wish you all a happy and a healthy new year.
1: We've been speaking with Dr. Yufei Zou, lead author of the recent paper in Nature Communications: Increasing Large Wildfires over the Western United States, linked to diminishing sea ice in the Arctic. You can find links to follow up more in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Ufe. Thank you for sharing your time with us.
3: Thank you, Alex for the invitation.
1: Yeah. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to this program, and my special thanks to all those listeners who support it. I can't do it without you. Be sure and tune in next week for more of Radio EcoShock. Please take care of your world.